I moved to the UK when I was 13 to go to school. Growing up in Korea, it's very stressful. It's very focused on academic results and it's a really difficult life. For me, the hardest thing I found on those Fridays was the anxiety of knowing stuff was happening, knowing I had to be present with Daniel, but honestly not knowing how to be present with Daniel. I started having symptoms of burnout and I think I'd was probably stored up energy and anxiety that started on sort of unleashing and and I, I didn't know it at the time that I was going through a burnout. But my, my family knew, my friends knew and they were very concerned. This month we are delighted to host Amy Todd on our podcast. Amy trained as an accountant and is now a partner at KPMG. Amy also co-founded Oxbox in 2018, which provided boxes of educational fun for children, which was inspired by Amy's background growing up in South Korea until the age of 13. Amy also has two sons who are 14 and 11. Amy, can we start by your moving to the UK from South Korea at age 13 and how you found the transition? Oh, wow. Okay. We're going there quite early. (laughs) Uh, The transition. So... For context, I moved to the UK when I was 13 to go to school. As some international students do, it's it's more normal than one might think. It sounds quite drastic, doesn't it, moving to the other side of the world when you're that young. But I desperately wanted to come and lots of my friends that came over from Korea, China, Japan, wherever that might be, a lot of the times it was the parents that sent them away. But I read a book when I was probably 10 or 11 that talked about life in a boarding school. Uh, it was set in, in in the US, actually, and I just fantasised about it. And growing up in Korea, is it's very stressful. It's very focused on academic results, and it's a really difficult life. And it's been a bit of a social issue over in Korea. So rather sadly, I can't believe we're starting on that, but you know, teenage suicide rates are really high in South Korea because of the pressure of academic, um, the competitiveness. So I wanted to get away from all of it. And my parents know it, I'm quite open about it. They, They had a lot of expectations and I just thought, do you know what life in England or the US in a boarding school sounds like a lot of fun so I begged them to send me away so so I came so that's the context and then of course when I arrived here with two suitcases and um I thought oh my god this is horrible I don't don't speak the language I don't know anybody I was desperately homesick for a very long time and I remember asking my parents to let me come back I'm really sorry I made a mistake, please let me come back, I'm desperately unhappy. Uh, and of course they said no, because you asked to go, <laughs> so you have to kind of, you know, live with it. So so I did, so I pulled myself together <laughs> and got on with it, which is quite tough, isn't it? But it toughened me up, toughened me up and um, it got better. By the time I was doing my sixth form, I think I'd kind of made peace with it. 
and I was having a lot of fun. I went to a great school, I had amazing teachers, and I got into quite a bit of trouble doing naughty stuff. Um, and then, and then there was uni, and and so yeah, that was the experience. I actually academically, I found stuff really easy, particularly doing GCSEs and stuff. And then, of course, by the time I was doing A-levels, I was starting to slip a little bit because I was starting to find life uh, quite fun, <laughs> getting into trouble. <laughs> Gosh, I, I'm I'm sorry we started on sounds like quite a challenging experience for you. Um, but how courageous of you to do that. I mean, to come on your own to a different country. Or naive. Or naive. <laughs> yeah, I think it's just pure naivety. It's really interesting because my eldest is now 14, and as you do as a parent, you kind of relive your childhood through through them again, don't you? And think, oh, my God, what, what was I doing when I was at that age? So 13, when Dan turned 13, it was quite a symbolic moment for me to observe because I don't really remember life before that point that much. You do, but not not in that sort of significant way. So, yeah, I think it was pure naivety. I mean, I, I read a book and then I thought, It'll be, it'll be fun. What a huge lesson in consequences from your parents as well to make you stick it out at such a young age. Yes, yes. Yeah, you make your bed in it. Uh, you you make your bed and you, you lie in it, yeah. That's a, a big lesson, yeah. Although I, and now I tell my parents, uh, not, my, not my parents, my children, that there aren't that many decisions in life that are truly irreversible. And I think about that a lot in work context too. Um, apart from ones like begging your pe- parents to send you to the other world, because that clearly was irreversible for me. <laughs> but yeah, so slightly unusual upbringing I had. Gosh, I mean, certainly unusual from a, I think, a kind of British perspective. <laughs> um, but it sounds like that's, it sounds like a lot of your friends were perhaps doing the same route as you were doing. So perhaps not as unusual in that context. Yeah, so I would say um, you know, I went to school in Korea and it was probably a hundred kids in my year group. There were, I was the only one from my school, but then by the time you come over here, there were maybe 10 other Korean kids that had come to the same school sort of thing in that year group. So it's not sort of normal as in everyone in the neighbourhood does it, but it, it's a thing. It, it is, there is a path and um, there is a system that allows you to, I guess, do that. Must have built up quite a bit of resilience in you as well, which I'm sure has sort of been demonstrated for your adult life as well. I think, I think it has. And in a positive and a negative way, um, I think it has in that I know I know what loneliness feels like and I know what sort of extreme um, feelings of desperate unhappiness look like and I experienced that quite earlier on in my age so you can you can kind of recognize that at the same time I went through a period of burnout probably about a year ago for lots of reasons um including my child being un- unwell at the time Sudan went through long COVID and work was quite intense and, and 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 it was COVID wasn't it so there's just a lot going on and I remember thinking about or reading uh something about like an elastic band you think that the more 
stress you go through and you come out of it, you become more resilient. I think so to a certain point, but at some point I think it's like an elastic band where the resistance starts going. So I think it can have two different dimensions. I'd love to hear a bit more about burnout, how you experience that. But just kind of going back to the beginning again, hmm. you, as I understand it, trained as an accountant. Did did you always know that that is what you wanted? How, how did you end up in no. that career? So I really wanted to go into something arty, like interior design or something. And I, I wanted to do art levels. Um. But at the time, again, you're heavily influenced uh, by your parents and other things at that age as you're choosing your A-level subject and what you might study at university. And um, with all the right intentions, they just felt that art wasn't going to be a viable career choice for me and therefore uh, absolutely not. Um, so I read economics at A-levels and I wanted to read economics at uni, actually. And that was, I guess, positive positively influenced by um, this amazing teacher that I had. I went to a school called Epsom College and my economics teacher at the time, um, she was absolutely phenomenal. She was such an amazing teacher, really inspirational. And she taught economics and therefore I wanted to study economics. I'm, I, I recently got back in touch with her actually through LinkedIn of all things and I'm sure she won't mind me sharing. She's now the headmistress at Cheltenham Ladies College. Just such an inspirational figure. Uh, Miss JY, I think she was the reason that I decided to read economics. So then when you when you then decide to read economics at university, then um, you go to, I guess, LSE, or I was also looking at Oxford at the time, but I dropped out of Oxbridge class when I was at school because I didn't really fancy working that hard by then. <laughs> I don't think that I've got the grades anyway in the end, in any case. Um, so I went to LSE and when they, when you then get into LSE, banking or accountancy is kind of what you do. So I don't think I really paused and thought about a career in accountancy per se, but I kind of fell into it because of the tactical, the immediate decisions I was making. Um, and when I was at uni, I wanted to go into investment banking more than accountancy. And I had a, because they paid better and it was the glamorous thing that you go for. I had an internship at a German investment bank uh, in 2002. And then they nearly got bought out by another bank, another European bank. So all of the graduate offers got pulled. So accountancy was a backup option. And I only applied to KPMG out of the big four, which is quite unusual. So lots of people that go into the accountancy world tend to apply to all of the big four. Whereas I just picked KPMG and I think it was again, quite a accidental thing. And then, and then that was the only job I got. So I joined KPMG. <laughs> Did you stay with KPMG for your whole career? I left and came back twice. In fact, if you include um, maternity leave, I left and come back. Uh, came back four times. And <laughs> again, okay, not not intentionally, but it seems to be the place where I think I flourish the most. And I think 
partly. So, so I left as soon as I qualified, which is quite a normal thing. So I um, qualified and then went to an investment bank. And I always thought that I would do that because I wanted to go into banking and then accountancy um, is the, the other option that I ended up taking. And I did go to an investment bank and I really wasn't happy and I knew that straight away. Uh, so within three months, I resigned and then went back to KPMG. So I remember um, calling my counselling partner at the time, and he's still in the firm, and so grateful. I called him up on my phone really late at night, like hiding behind the coats in the bank. I was just really unhappy, but I was working late and I didn't feel like I could talk openly. So I was hiding behind this rack of coats. <laughs> And said, I'm just really unhappy. So he said, what are you doing? Just come back. So that was it. He he met me for coffee the following Monday. And yeah, I had to serve my three months notice and went back to KPMG. <laughs> and with my tail tucked between my legs. Although it was never, it wasn't seen as a bad noob. Everyone was really, really positive about it. So, yeah, my, my brother went to KPMG, so I'm a little bit familiar yeah. with that process. And it is, I think, quite normal for you for, to train in a, one of the big four and then you kind of go off and do other things. So um, it's, it sounds like investment banking was not your calling. <laughs> and no. then how long were you at KPMG for when you returned? Um, I then stayed and then I was, I was dead certain that this is it. I'm going to stay here. Thank God, I was so grateful that they took me back with such grace and respect. And um, and then, of course, I had my two boys. And in 2000, I think it was 2012, so I stayed on for, must have been seven, eight years, and had two kids in, in between. I decided that I actually really wanted to be in industry. Lots of reasons, but by the time I was a senior manager in KPMG, I was doing a lot of tenders and pitches. And I felt that being able to truly understand what it's like to be a CFO on the other side of the table really mattered. And I've always been pretty obsessed with retail as a sector. So my family comes from retail business. And I worked on a project um, on a, or, or a pitch for a retail client. And it really just sparked that, oh, retail. There's something really beautiful about retail because of its simplicity and because I grew up in that environment and I've, I grew up hearing stories of my grandfather sort of being a merchant. And so I decided to try it out in industry. So I left and went to John Lewis and then um, after about two and a half years, I went to work for Ace Watson, which owns the Super Drug and Savers brand in the UK. And then I decided that, you know what, um, I'm not really sure sort of working my way up to a CFO is my thing either. And uh, I then took a career break and did an MBA. And during that time, I built my Oxbox business and I'd just come back to the firm initially on a contract basis just before COVID because I was trying to get more cash flow into my startup business and then COVID happened so I had to kind of grow up a bit and <laughs> when and the firm was very gracious again they they offered me a permanent role 
to head up special project, which is the most amazing title ever. So that was that. So I came back. So I've been back now, gosh, about five years. Special projects sounds yeah. like a um, James Bond <laughs> does <laughs> secret mission. <laughs> There's there's a lot there is a lot there, um, Amy, in terms of your history, um, and we slightly jumped over the the child bit. So mm. I'd love to just go back on that. And mm. I guess did you always want to be a mum? Was that something that you had planned for and thought about? And in that sense, was accountancy a, a kind of a good option for for that family planning? Was that one of the reasons you kept returning? Oh, giggling because <laughs> to answer your second question first, it was in a way because I, I met my husband at work, so Candace <laughs> literally helped me become a mother. <laughs> um, the first one, I I think, I mean, I was relatively young when I was, so um, this is where TMI becomes an issue for me, but Danielle, our eldest, was a honeymoon baby, so I was... I was 27 when I got married. So I really hadn't, we didn't think it would happen that quickly. None of my friends had children, particularly in a sort of city, Canary Wharf, professional setting. None of my friends were anywhere near that. So it all just happened very quickly. So I don't think I ever really thought about, do I want to become, I, I guess I always ambiguously thought I would be a mother that I wanted to have children, but it's not like um, I had a project plan or anything, which I did for the wedding, by the way. So the minute <laughs> the minute Henry <laughs> asked me to marry him, I was like, okay, here's the Liberace folder with the <laughs> Did you get married in the UK or in South Korea? I did. We got married at the Queen's House in Greenwich Park. And it was just lovely. And actually it was full of work people because... It, it's just over the river from Canary Wharf where our office was and we used to work in the same department so in the end we just ended up inviting the whole department to the drinks afterwards so it became like a, amazing yeah and it was sort of Dece- December 20th December so it was quite close to Christmas and I have such happy memories you probably could have got it as a as a KPMG work and a social <laughs> social budget <laughs> yeah expensive yeah <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I don't think that quite fits the bill, but I have so many happy <laughs> memories from from the wedding. Um, so, and then did accountancy. I have no, I have no frame of reference directly because I don't know what what the experience would have been like had I had kids in other professions or other companies. But when I then met with my friends and UNCT groups and whatnot. I think I definitely had it easier structurally. There was a greater understanding of what it meant and there was a lot of support mechanism, even, even when I had Daniel, which is going back you know, 14 years. And I don't think it was, I think we've made a lot of progress, but even back then I had a lot of support coming back to work. I felt quite comfortable telling my partners and directors at the time when I was working on engagements, even before the 12-week scam that just uh, found out I'm pregnant. And they were very supportive in terms of workload and stress levels. I think I had it easier than others, although I I don't have a direct frame of reference. Why do you think KPMG has developed that 
sort of superior support? Is it to do with the gender split of employees they've had or is it because it's a bigger company or what do you think sort of led to that? So I think more structurally and over the last 14 years or so, the, the progress that the likes of the big four have made, I think it is the, the people focus. It's a people-based business. So this, uh, I would suggest that having then been in different industries, there's definitely a lot more investment that goes into looking after talent and looking after people. And there's a great focus on diversity all the way through the organisation. When I first went back to work after having Daniel, I would suggest that it was more the individuals that I was, that I had the, the the luxury of working with that had very progressive views on this topic. So I had um, amazing sort of mentors and sponsors and bosses, and a lot of them are still in the firm. And they they really went out of their way to support me and pull me out and, um, the firm also provided me with a coaching support, so a specific uh, professional coach uh, for a year. And that came about because my so performance manager, and he's, a, he's still a partner in the firm, actually, he recognised that I was finding things quite challenging. And we can unpack what, I, what it was that I was finding challenging, if you'd like to. Um, so he found a way for me to get this coaching support and I still remember her name Karen entirely and I just cried a lot with her (laughs) every month and it became like a therapy but that period really helped me just figure out what works and what doesn't and how to make sense of this new reality that suddenly I was finding myself in. How old was your son around that time is that when you just newly come back or is it further down the line? Yes, so I think pretty sure I went back to work when Daniel was just under a year old and I had that coaching support in that first year after I came back. What did you find hard, Amy? I think the biggest thing for me was that I had been a high performer and I I got there through working really hard. Like, you know, work was my life my husband and I used to just work all the time in the office and grab dinner and then go home together. So the practical arrangements of having to be home at a specific time. So I had a, and again, I think I I was more lucky than most people, but I had a full-time nanny that worked 11 hours a day. And this idea of packing up at 5.30 and getting home for 6.30 was just so alien to me. And and I couldn't work in the evening either because I was having to do, I was doing the um, bedtime, obviously, and then Daniel wasn't a great sleeper. So I was just exhausted. So, oh, my God, how do I deliver the same output? literally squeezed into like seven eight hours max and I couldn't get my head around it so I was then finding myself feeling really stressed and not really knowing I'm like how do I do this I, I just don't know what the formula is anymore what what used to work for me and what got me there just wasn't possible anymore and I was also physically exhausted and not sleeping and all of the stuff that new mum's experience right and and I did work I went back to work four days a week and I found Fridays quite difficult 
So I was meant to be at home, but I found it full of anxiety. And that that was quite hard. It's funny you say that, Amy, and and thank you for being so open about the challenges that you experienced. I think that's really helpful for our listeners. But it's funny you say that about the four day week, because we have heard that quite consistently from others Mm. that Mm. actually you're doing 100 percent of the work for 20 percent less pay. And actually Fridays become incredibly challenging because, you know, you've got your you're still kind of vaguely on cool, but also you often have to work quite late on the Thursday in order to kind of allow yourself to have that that day off. Um, and and the, you're not necessarily rea- fresh. <laughs> yeah, I think the reality is that, and, and that is a very logical way to look at it, and I think that is true in many ways. Although one would argue that when you're working five days full full time, you're probably working way more than that anyway. So I think there is proportionality to are you actually getting paid for four days versus five days? And I think that can be an individual thing. For me, the hardest thing I found on those Fridays was the anxiety of knowing stuff was happening, knowing I had to be I had to be present with Daniel. But honestly not knowing how to be present with Daniel because my half my mind was on stuff happening and it wasn't that anybody was calling me or because if I needed to actually work on something I could work on it and I would have been paid by the firm for that it was more this world is happening and I'm not there and I'm I'm not being I'm not doing a good job of being a mum or being at work and I think that that's constant thing that for a long time I think a lot of new mums wrestle with or continue to wrestle with I think for me personally think, over the years I've kind of got rid of that <laughs> I think that I think that's right um I think it's really it's a really difficult balancing act mm. um and I think it is helpful to hear that and to hear about your challenges was the coach helpful in helping through that were there any kind of tips or practical ways in which you were able to overcome that anxiety um and to support you in in that um so the coach had a huge impact on me during that period and I don't know if I ever let Caroline know what a positive impact she had on me I've lost touch now she helped enormously, but I couldn't tell you how and why. I, I can't really recall the practical stuff that came out of it. I just remember that being a huge source of release, non-judgmental, not having to pretend, not having to feel like I've got it all, being a mum, being a wife, uh, being at work. I mean, forget friendship and being a good daughter or a sister. Like, those are well, well off the table. <laughs> I'm just trying to do the bare minimum. And she just really listened and she helped me. I think she prodded me and just prompted me to think about ultimately looking after me first. And I remember her sort of drawing out spider diagrams for me around how I felt about health and sleep and my own happiness and before children and work and that came into the picture so I think she she just gave me that safe space one hour a month where 
you could be a complete narcissist <laughs> without being told you're being a narcissist. <laughs> <Love> it, <but laughs> it does. Did your it does very much. Did did your partner experience some of these challenges? So when we had Daniel, my, my husband still worked at Cape Crimson. He was two more two years more senior than me. He had more responsibility. I think in all honesty, we've talked about this quite a lot um, over the years. When it was just Daniel, the first one, I don't think his life had changed. His life had changed that much. But we didn't know, we didn't realize that was the outcome. When we had William, so William's 11, and so the age gets two and a half, and that wasn't planned either. Um, so I was going to leave a <laughs> longer gap. By the time William came along, we had a big, not an incident per se, but there was a real breakthrough moment. And I decided with Henry that things had to change because one plus one really wasn't two. One plus one was suddenly like eight and I just couldn't go anymore. <laughs> Sounds familiar. Yeah, it, you just kind of think surely one plus one is two. And anyway, the first one must get easier. And then you go, this is like a whole new level of practical challenges and sleep deprivation 24-7 type thing. Henry had gone to um, a really remote island in Norway when William was about four months old. And because it was a remote island for work, he he could only sort of fly on a Thursday and get back on a Tuesday or something. They were limited flight schedule. So I was having to spend sort of four or five days on my own over the weekend. And Daniel was really not sleeping. And by about sort of day three, I, I, I had a moment of just an episode three four in the morning when I just called him and just screamed at him as you've got to get home I am I am not coping I'm just not sleeping and I'm about to absolutely lose it and this is in the context of there's no my sister lives quite close to me but she had her own two kids about the same age so it's not like we can we can really help each other Uh, my parents live overseas Henry's parents live up north so there's no sort of Nobody can give you relief for even an hour. And by about day three, I think I just completely lost it. So Henry ended up flying home. And I, don't, I to this day, I still don't know how he got home because it was a remote island, but he did. And we had a big sit-down talk. And I was going back to work sort of three, four months later. So I went back to work when William was slightly younger. Um, and we just decided that this was going to be a 50-50 thing as much as possible. And we're not going to fall into the trap of I still pick up most of the childcare stuff. It just doesn't work. And he's incredibly hands-on. And I think that's sort of a breakthrough that happened for good. It was ugly though. <laughs> Sometimes things have to get ugly, don't they? Well, you and I just vividly remember after calling Henry, it's so irrational, isn't it? We had this kitchen and it was just an Ikea shelf. We all have Ikea shelves at home, right? With children's books. And I started reorganising it like four in the morning. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Lost <laughs> I mean, I don't know about Alzi, but I absolutely can resonate with what you're saying. Um, y- you know, I've had periods of time on my own with both and it's such a struggle. Um it is, and I think you just get tired. And and the reality is that, and I have a lot of sort of professional friends, like doctors and lawyers and bankers and accountants, and you, you 
live a big chunk of your life being a problem solver serving clients and you can do it because you have to that's part of what you do you, you've got to and you keep stepping up and up and up and up and up and then I don't think that mentality translates into working motherhood in a healthy way unless something snaps and you go okay this isn't meant to transfer it's not like it's not a transferable thing <laughs> it's not designed <laughs> to be that way um so uh, yeah there, there have been a lot of those like you know irrational erratic I can't do this anymore it's really helpful to hear that um I think and in terms of your childcare arrangements, you mentioned you had a full-time nanny. Mm. Was that critical for you as a family? Yes. Given you were both working long hours, <laughs> hard yeah. job. Yes. So another um, another really meaningful advice that I heard that stuck with me, and, and look, you hear lots of advice and some, some just doesn't resonate with you. And then there's a few comments or words that you you kind of grab onto and go yes that is it and one of those was a um a director at the time who again my um, performance manager had put me in touch with um said to me outsource 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 and that sounds awful but let me unpack it in context when you become a mum and you're continuing your career your time is so precious you've got to be ruthless about what is it that only you and you can do everything else you've got to let others help you and sometimes that means paying the right people to be there as the support mechanism so I have stuck by that and I still do I probably shouldn't anymore <laughs> but it's quite a nice uh, nice principle to live by so again, Henry and I just really dissected what is it that allow us to function as a family. And for a very long time, that meant that financially, me working didn't make sense because the reality of childcare cost and 11 hours a day, full-time nanny type thing, even, you know, I think it's got worse over the years, just meant that I was working and then the pay, net pay was investment we were making into that. But we agreed that as a family that that was the only way that I could um, make it work. And I just couldn't, if I was struggling with the idea of packing up at 5.30 and getting home for 6.30, can you imagine the stress of dropping off at nursery in the morning at a sort of later start time, getting the kids out of the house? And I just couldn't um, imagine that. So that didn't work for me personally. Fast forwarding then to 2018. Yes. You chose to set up Oxbox. Yes. Could you tell us a bit more about that? Why why you did it? What direction you were thinking about your career going, given mm. that you ended up back at KPMG? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I, I love to these things and I, I, I'm quite a spontaneous person which for an accountant to be an interesting personality profiling to be done. But I, I knew that I wanted to do my executive MBA. And that was a nice way to, and I, you know, it's a great course to do, but 
for me, it was, I just wanted a bit of a break and to think. I've never stopped working. I kind of fell into accountancy, career and finance and going back into, I probably would have done something more arty and interior design. And so I just needed to pause. Um, and then whilst you're doing the MBA, a lot of people continue working because it's a part-time course. So you can do that when, it, when it's executive, but a lot of people also just decide to take a career break, which is what I did. And I thought, well, I've got this time and I, I can never, I've never been able to have time and do nothing. Um, and it's the second startup that I started actually, because when I was on maternity leave with Daniel, I also set up a maternity wear business <laughs> when I was on maternity leave. Um, so there's a pattern of just not being able to stay still, which is something that I try to work with. Um, so I I read a book, and, and again, there's a common theme. I read certain books, and then I go, yeah, that's it. That's just the <laughs> Uh, I'm moving abroad. I know. I'm moving. Got to be really careful. So, lesson in life: just be careful with what books you choose to read if you're (laughs) easily inspired. And it talked about how startups come from like two different dimensions. One is taking a new idea in that's working well in one geography, and then taking it to another region. And then another one is more vertical, where you have a true innovation and technology breakthrough. Now, I wasn't going to be able to come up with true innovation and technology breakthrough, because I hadn't come up with any original ideas by the time I was sort of you know, 38 or whatever, whatever my age would be. And then. So I thought, I'm going to see what's working well in different countries. And and I, I tested it through Instagram. I just opened three random different accounts. One was a, um, something around sort of curated menswear accessories, taking something from the Savile Rose of this world and taking it to the Far East. One was around taking, at the time, the curry recipe uh, subscription was really taking off in the UK and I felt maybe I can take that to another country in the virus and then the third one was just loosely around children's education and that was I guess at the more innovative and different and original thinking end of the spectrum and I opened this three accounts up with sort of you know inspirational pictures coming soon type thing which is what we call call to action in the startup world and then the education thing just just took off and I was starting to get messages from people saying, what is it you're doing? And, and can we can we like try it? Are you doing any beta testing? Are you doing any samples? So that's how it started. So I found myself sort of going to Sainsbury's and making up a box of toys for a specific age around a specific te- theme and then packaging it and sending it off to Korea and obviously making a net loss. <laughs> they won't pay me enough for me to be able to do the postage. And then it really took off through word of mouth. So then I put my thoughts together and joined an accelerator program funded for by City of London. And then it became a thing. And it just grew quite quickly through social media. It got picked up by the press in Korea. And yeah, we started actually producing content and writing books. And I found a supply in Korea who was happy to be my joint venture partner and funded the working capital upfront to go into production for the first set of modules. You can see, you can see some of the boxes on the shelf. There's um there's Oxbox things. Um so yeah, that's that's how it started. So it was quite experimental. Um 
and I had a lot of fun, a lot of fun. But in reality, I don't know whether whether it was COVID or not. I don't really know whether I was at the right time in my life to go into it fully. It's quite a big risk and it's quite a big ask of the family in terms of taking on that risk of basically mummy having fun but not making any money for a long time and it may or may not lead to something. <laughs> so, yeah, but I learned a lot. So this was whilst you were doing your MBA. Were you still mm. working with KPMG or at this no. Or, uh, no? No. Okay. So the MBA lasted for 18 months and I had my startup business and did the did the MBA. And the, the MBA was quite fun. So at what point at what point did you decide to return to professional services? And how how did that interact with that period you mentioned about getting burnout? So I came back to KPMG in November 19 at the towards the end of my MBA. So the MBA starting January 18. And what prompted me to come back was actually there was a specific um program that the firm was sort of a running transformation program internally, and they needed somebody with a very specific combination of skills and I, I saw the opportunity on LinkedIn and I, I was looking for contract roles at the time because I wanted to get cash flow into the startup business and I wanted a bit more time to think about do I go back into a corporate career or do I keep going with a startup stuff and I wanted to extend that thinking period a bit whilst also de-risking things by making some money <laughs> Um, and KPMG was that role just was perfect for me I know the firm they were looking for somebody with a unique sort of set of skills with an understanding of audit and better if you know the if you have relationships in the firm but with a specific set of skills and uh, from a functional perspective and so I'd come in initially for 12 months on a consultancy basis and then, so that was November 19, and then COVID happened pretty soon after. My my husband was still at the firm, and he'd never left. I mean, there's, there's just this extreme sort of polar opposite personality. Henry, she's stable as ever. And then there's just me with my squiggly career, and it's very exciting and, and quite sort of extreme um, emotions that I go through in life. And he's just that one source of constant... And then when COVID happened, Henry was in order. And it's a very stressful um, profession. And I have just so much respect for auditors, having been an ex-auditor, because I couldn't, you know, it's a hard job. There's a lot of stress. There's a lot of demands. And both technically, but also working through the complex landscape that is that profession, huge amount of responsibility. And he decided around about I think February and March he decided to leave the firm and this was in the middle of COVID and lots of people went through very difficult times right and therefore it made sense that one of us at least had the stability of a um, permanent permanent job and again the firm was so always I've always just been really looked after by by the firm, and I say the firm, but it's the individuals that I work with and work for that have always really looked after me in those ways, as a in a in a very um, yeah in a great way. And they they 
they'd wanted me to come in permanently in Europe for the security of the the pro program that I was involved in at the time. So yeah, that there was almost again not accidental, but it wasn't like right. I'm going to map it out. This is the milestone. I'm going to go back into. This is my way back into getting It didn't didn't kind of happen that way. But you know, I couldn't. They 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 offered me a role that I couldn't refuse. I'm a head of special projects, and it was just the best of both worlds. That freedom to be entrepreneurial and deep thinking, and I do love intellectual sort of cur intellectually curious people and I was working with and and also that coming with that freedom to think broadly and variety of stuff um so it was it was just something that I really couldn't refuse and how has it been since you've been in the role Amy you mentioned at the start that you've had a um issue with one of your children being sick and that's sort of weighed quite heavily on you could you talk a bit about that if you're happy to yeah sure um so I was a. I did the head of special projects role, and I did a. Um, I delivered a couple of programs, and then I moved into um, a bigger role. I, I led a digital transformation program in the firm, and it was quite intense. Lots and and technology is not a discipline that I was familiar with. So, although I was familiar with the concept of it and been a user of it in many ways, so it was a new. Um, new sort of area that I had to get familiar with and it was quite an intense program and during that time Daniel was diagnosed with long COVID but the diagnosis for long COVID isn't quick so you, you, you're talking sort of three four months of him just not being well and he'd been such a fit sporty healthy kid that it, it was very puzzling and he was declining quite slowly but rapidly if that makes sense so Sort of getting that phone call from school on Monday, and then thinking that he's back, he's back again. He's worked through a bug, and then Wednesday we get another call, and then the the following Monday, and then and then you go right, this is not right, and then going around lots of different um, medical tests. And at the time, people didn't really know how to diagnose long COVID anyway, so there was a lot of tests to eliminate some scary potential illnesses like he had a, a MRI scan of his brain just before Christmas that year and so <laughs> it happened over a very extended period whilst work was quite intense so I think in a way that the duration over which it happened just made it worse and I was trying to I wasn't really sharing um, what was going on at home with work not because I didn't feel that I could I, I think I I was compartmentalizing it massively with subconsciously because um, I simply couldn't let the practicalities just clash with each other. And and then by the time he was diagnosed, that's when I started having symptoms of burnout. And I think I'd was probably stored up energy and anxiety that started on sort of unleashing and um and I, I didn't know it at the time that I was going through a burnout, but my my family knew, my friends knew, and they were very concerned. And it probably happened over, I would say, six month period. It's all, all a, a little bit of a blur, which is what I now label that as that period of burnout, because <laughs> I don't remember it that much, but I. I remember it through how my family and friends told me what I was like during that period, sort of half empty, just really not kind of being present. 
It's quite sad, isn't it? I think it's quite helpful for people to hear that you can't always notice it within yourself. Yes. Because sometimes it's difficult as well for family members and friends to necessarily say anything. Yeah. And to pick up on those symptoms. Um, So I think it's quite helpful for kind of relatively driven people to realise that it can happen without you necessarily even realising. Correct. And I think it's really hard to recognise yourself in yourself because, um, again, just very driven, high-achieving people. A lot of us new run with such intensity that it, it becomes normal to you, that level of intensity, right? So you're probably the last person to notice when something's not quite right. And And the symptoms... Amy, were they, you said you weren't necessarily present, were there other symptoms that might help someone identify it earlier? So sleep is a big thing, um, I'm realising, and I think I had, although we were joking earlier about me, my sleep being slightly out of whack at the moment, (laughs) Um, but I can laugh about it, it, I'm finding it quite funny, so I think it's, it's a red flag, but I was definitely not sleeping well um, during that period and I was waking up frequently and my mind was just not switching off and my I, I struggle with switching off my mind anyway but back then it was just either Dan or work and it was just those two things and I couldn't think about anything else and um, the other thing was that I was getting very teary particularly if somebody asked that, how are you? You know, not, oh, how are you doing? But hang on, how are you? Then I would just break down. So that was a little bit of an obvious giveaway. And I think those were the things. And I, I had my 40th birthday right in the mid- middle of feeling that way. And I didn't have the energy to plan anything I just didn't want to do anything and I, I ended up going to centre parks with my um my family and my my um husband's brother's family and I have the most wonderful sister-in-law and she was just giving me a big cuddle and everyone understood and nobody pushed me to do anything either which is because they all saw it there was this sense of fragility that they could see things. I, I feel quite teary talking about it now because it must have been so obvious <laughs> for them to not even talk about. Do you want a party? Because they knew that no, this isn't this isn't that painful period. So it must have been quite tough. And this is coming from wedding right, planner extraordinaire. Right, right. And I, a... you know, I love a good party. <laughs> I, well, yeah. I love you know, my friends and going out, but something, everybody knew that there was just this dark, <laughs> this isn't, um, this isn't the time to be doing it. So, so I think it's that, and I, I don't know, probably different from for everybody, but ultimately, you're just not who you are. And your your, your most loved ones will see it first, I think. Thank you for being so open about that. And I think it sounds like you have wonderful friends and family who... I do, I really do. Didn't push. Yeah, they did. (laughs) Didn't push you to to do anything particularly, which I think is is amazing. Um, 
when you did identify it, how did you move away from that period? So I, by the time I realised, okay, this is, something's not quite right. And I went through a partner process, probably as I was feeling that sort of sense of burnout. And, and Daniel was still not fully well. I think it was a lot to do. You know, they talk about sort of three-legged stools. So when it's working, it's okay. But one falls away and then suddenly it collapses and I think I went through that period. So as soon as I went through the partner process, which, as we all know, is it's quite an intense um, process for lots of people, openly so, I decided that, first of all, I needed to get my physical fitness uh, under control. And I did a bit of research whilst we were on holiday. So we went to New York and Boston for two weeks. And during that holiday, I, I was fixated on this idea of, I'm going to crack this. <laughs> this. This isn't okay. And I was going to do physical fitness, look into a therapist, and just drastically change my lifestyle. Um, tinkered, I tried a few therapists and it just didn't, I couldn't find anybody that I really felt safe with and therefore I cracked on with this quite an intense fitness program and it is quite intense and I, I say to people who've asked me about it it's like an intervention um, and it's a program that I did with a gym called Ultimate Performance and they've got sort of gyms dotted around the city and I did two PT sessions a week and he'd monitor my sleep my food and my <laughs> body metrics and I did that for about five months and I think that is quite possibly one of the best things that I did for my my health full stop uh, it just completely whipped me into shape and and they do it and they do it so well because it, it is designed for busy overachievers <laughs> they just give you these goals and but they tell you exactly what to do so there's no deviation um and you you don't need to think either you just need to follow what they're telling so burn out your body rather than your mind yes and I think <laughs> I, I think that is it a big part of their uh sort of program is based on weight training and I found out that I'd never done weight training before weight training was the one thing that completely wiped out my mind because when you're lifting heavy you literally can't think about anything else because otherwise you can drop it and it's quite dangerous. So momentarily, my mind was getting wiped out. So it's a bit like, you know, on your phone, when you have your browsers open, multiple tabs open, you have to go and close it, don't you? And then it gives you a little bit of speed back in storage, but it's a bit like that. That's how I came out of it, genuinely, I think. It's another example of outsourcing as well, isn't it? You know, getting some of the decision-making off your plate. Yeah. <laughs> yes, seeking help yes yes not having to and and so much of it is actually taking those micro decisions out of your brain I think just let somebody do the research and tell you what to do um and Amy what do your kids think about your career and having a mum who's worked and you know do they have a sense of pride or you think they're too young to really understand what you've what you've done or is this a bit of a time capsule that they can listen to one day when they've got their own children to uh, get perspective? Oh, I would love to. Uh, yeah, I would love to. I mean, I, I, I'm the well, the joke of the family, by the way, and, and I was saying that literally this week, and if I didn't work, 
they'd think mummy is useless, I think, because I, outside of work, I lack some core basic life skills, I think. So, you know, I'm quite accident prone and I have a shockingly bad level of general knowledge and I, I can't really understand people <laughs> at the best of times and I, I bimble, I get lost and I, I just lack those basic functional skills I think they they wouldn't know what mummy was all about if I didn't work and I think they're always puzzled by this fact that mummy is supposedly got a good job and she supposedly does they just really bemused by that I think 90% of the time it's so funny because this is what my husband says about me as well he's like I don't understand how you function I don't know that that is literally I, I get into the car and I'm like where are we going? Uh, Henry doesn't drive, so I do the driving, but I don't know where I'm going, and I'm lost all the time. And I, it's it's a mystery to them that mommy has a job, but at the same time, I think they, they, I, I think they are really proud of me working. And whilst obviously, I, I don't know whether a big part of that is me self sort of rationalising that because there is that guilt that you know you can't do the. You can't do the charity cake bake stuff, or and I've definitely done that thing where I've sent my son to co-op to get a cake and just ruffle it up and put it in. I've, I've definitely <laughs> done that, and it's desperately like trying to fit in with the the mums, and then at some point you just give up. And now I like you know I don't I don't try, but I think they find that funny now. So. Um, and more so with my eldest uh, by age, and he's very, he's quite a big thinker and he's really into like politics and economics and he loves reading about finance stuff and um, he's really into organisational psychology. So we talk about a lot of work stuff and we have done from when he was really tiny. So I remember explaining um, the whole Brexit thing to Dan when he was tiny. Wow. Like Brexit. When when did Brexit happen? Like 2016. Yeah, 16. So Dan would have been he was born in 2009 to seven. And I remember explaining Brexit to him. Um, so he, he he's always curious about stuff happening around the world and he soaks it up and and he also likes that I make money he'll openly ask me how much money do you make like quite periodically <laughs> I think <laughs> I just feel like I've got a master at home who's sort of judging me for my return on investment but he, he's quite quietly pleased that he he sees as sort of this bimbler at home he, she seems to do all right in terms of return on investment <laughs> that's hilarious yeah but I'm sure they are. I'm sure they're very proud of you, Amy. Um, mm. I just had one very yeah. quick question, if I may. And this is solely because I think my dad mm. will be interested and he okay. does listen to this podcast and I think he'll be annoyed sure. if I didn't ask the question at the time. You mentioned that your grandfather mm. was a merchant. What was he a merchant of? Rice merchant. Interesting. Yeah. Initially. Yeah. And then I think he did fabrics too. And and then later on, I heard that he had um, entertainment groups, like circus crews that he was then sort of higher out type of thing. Yeah. The family history. <laughs> I feel like we need another podcast just to delve into that. <laughs> well, yeah, it's really fascinating. I've got photos of him. It's really, really fascinating. It was all in the period of uh, 
the Koreans, uh, when Korea was under Japanese occupation, and then it went to Korea. And also, there's just fascinating history that comes out of that generation of the family. But yeah, it's lived on. My my aunties and uncles, they're all very entrepreneurial and they have businesses, and it's that's fascinating. Um, and we've loved hearing from you, as we do with all of our guests. It'll be fantastic to hear what your biggest high and biggest low have been of this um, motherhood and, and working journey that, that you've been on. So I think the biggest high is the the combination of when I made it to partner at the firm and my, my boys and my family being genuinely so happy for me and for us. When I came home, or actually I was home when I received the news from my sponsor, can't describe that. that that was just such a high. I think the low is that period of burnout. Again, it's the combination of my family, like my nearest and dearest, not feeling well and trying to juggle that with work. And that was probably the lowest. But in the middle, there's so many moments of just fun and joy, you know, like during COVID, trying to do big board presentations and then like kicking my son out of the way because he's just coming to the study and wanting help with his um virtual classroom being set up and just like you know that wow just <laughs> trying to talk to them through but you know I think it's a hard one I, I never think it's a binary thing do you work or do you not you do I think the, the decision has to be what makes you and your family happy and whole? And I don't mean happy as in every day is filled with laughter, but something that keeps you going and the purpose. And I just feel really lucky that I've been able to continue living this way with, despite my lack of practical skills and and, and so much support along the way from my family, the boys and people at work, my colleagues and my friends. So although it feels hard at times, I think just knowing that that's quite normal and just part of life. I think that's what's going to be great for our listeners is to just hear that there are ups and downs and that there are inevitably, you know, there are inevitably both of those um, just about trying to navigate it as best you can. And I think hearing about your career, which has been, you know, interesting and exploratory is really fascinating. Um, different from you know some of the people that, that we've interviewed before so I think that's also a really helpful thing to hear about you you can move around you can try new things even while juggling a family um, and I think you know thank you again for the vulnerability and the openness and talking about what was hard because I think that the more we can normalize these issues hopefully it means we can nip them in the bud earlier and people won't feel like they have to you know hide and keep going feel like they've got support around them to, to be open about it so we really appreciate that. Um, thank you for your time on this evening and hope we haven't ruined your sleep schedule. So uh, <laughs> hope you have a good night's sleep. No, that's all right. I'll get back to napping. <laughs> <laughs> hope you have a great night's sleep. <laughs> thank you. Thank you for having me. Really nice to chat. Thank you, guys. Thank you so much for listening to our new Women Who Work podcast. Please help us to grow our listenership by subscribing, reviewing and commenting. And please do share with any friends or colleagues who you think may find this useful. Also join us on LinkedIn or sign up to the mailing list on our website, www.womanwhowork.uk to ensure that you never miss any of our content.
If you'd like to be involved with Women Who Work or have any ideas for us, then please do get in touch on email at hello at womanwhowork.uk. Thanks again.